Self-control. Disciplining your thoughts, words, actions, and attitudes. Hey guys, how are you guys doing today? Good. Good. How are you? Good. Bumper, sit. So today we're going to talk about self-control. And I brought my dog Bumper along to help me demonstrate this. So we're going to do a little exercise. What I'm going to have you do is I'm going to have Bumper sit here and I'm going to have him stay. And what I want you guys to do is try to get him to come off of the spot that I told him to sit at. So I'll try to hold him, his attention onto me and you guys try to take his attention away from me. Okay? Ready? Go. Self-control can be shown in all shapes and sizes. So the reason why Bumper didn't listen to you guys is because I'm his master and he only listens to me. So who's your master? Even the most unique situations can make a lasting impact on us as we see self-control displayed. In life, we are constantly afforded the opportunities to either show self-control or give in to the pressure. We've all been there. We've all had those moments where things seem enticing. But it's in those moments where self-control desperately needs to take action. And when we dig deep to display self-control, we obtain the willpower to control our emotions. So what life lessons can you apply to your everyday journey? What situations do you come up against where you can put self-control into action? Because there's no better feeling than to make the right choice in a difficult moment. Self-control, how can you show it? Plato said, for a man to conquer himself is the first and noblest of all victories. <laughs> That's a great statement. And the way we conquer ourselves is to become followers of Christ. See, God made each of us to live in relationship with Him. And I like to tell people there's a God-shaped vacuum in all of us until we come into that relationship. But nothing else will fill it because it's God-shaped and He wants to be the one that fills that vacuum. When He comes and takes up residence in us, we become the dwelling place of God. And a part of that is the gifts that come with the empowerment of God living in us. One of those is self-control. It's a gift of the Spirit. It's a discipline of thoughts, words, actions, your attitude. I don't let the circumstances around me control me. I let the God who lives in me control me. And if you will live that, it will help you relate well to others because you are under control, self-control. It's again, depending on God, the Holy Spirit to equip you, strengthen you in your inner being so that you can be the kind of person that God wants you to be. Without his control in my life, I am tempted to be destructive and not only self-harm, but harm others because of my lack of control. Scripture again says that no temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will let you be, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will always provide a way out 
escape, a way of escape, so that you can endure it. That's self-control, that's empowerment from God alone. And so I wanna encourage you to look at developing that relationship with God so that you can be the recipient of the Holy Spirit living in you and He will give you the gift of self-control. Everybody's had a good day. I've had a great day. Have, have any, anybody here know the name Rosetta Thorpe? Anybody? Uh, somebody sent me a link today uh, that, I mean, it, it blessed my heart. And uh, uh, if it doesn't bless you, I'm sorry. But uh, uh, if you go to my Facebook page, you can go to, go to my, my page and see this. Thing. This lady influenced uh, Elvis Presley, Little Richard, uh, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, She's something else. She's, she's singing Let It Rain. So it was a, it was a great song. And uh, I just got blessed. I, and in fact, I put on Facebook, I, I, now the worship team's done a great job. Let's give it up for the worship team. Yeah. I, I'm not throwing them under the bus. Please know that. But I did put on Facebook, I wish she was singing for me tonight at Salem Fields. Uh, she, I mean, she was really good. Um, I want to talk to you tonight about the reality of something that's happening in our world. How many of you know that there's a war going on? And I'm not talking about what's happening in Afghanistan or Iraq or anywhere else in the world. The war that I'm talking about is far more real, far more devastating than World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm, or any other of the conflicts that we've been involved in. It's a war that Paul describes as a battle that's taking place in the heavenlies. And our adversary, the devil, is dirty. He plays for keeps, and he's out to seek to devour us. Now, the good news is this, as I said on that video, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. The devil and all of his demons cannot defeat us. We don't have to live in fear of him because of who Christ is in us. But we need to be aware of the fact that there is a war going on. Several years ago, Barb and I were visiting with her mom and dad up in Pennsylvania, and uh, we were watching Wild Kingdom. Uh, that night it was on television. We were just sitting there, and it was about lions. And uh, that morning I had read in my devotions from Peter where he describes our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion. But as I was watching this documentary on lions, it was like it was a different animal because what I was seeing was these little cubs rolling around in the grass playing and having a good time. They almost wanted to take one home with you. You know, they were just having a good time. And they were moving through this jungle grass. But as the program went on, it became very apparent that they were stalking a herd of antelope. They were not roaring. They were still goofing around playing. But they had another intent. And they finally isolated this one antelope away from the herd, and then they roared. But it was too late. And I thought, that's our adversary. That's what he does. He entices us. He makes it look so good, so glamorous, and, and so attractive. And yeah, I'd like to try that. And then all of a sudden, we're trapped. Now, let me share one other uh, illustration and it happened to me personally 
uh, a number of years ago. I was asked by Wycliffe Bible translators, the people that go in and study language so that they can translate and so that everybody can have the Bible in their own language. And I was invited to be a minister to missionaries both in Colombia and Ecuador. And uh, I know we've, we flew from Ecuador across the Andes in a DC-3 and landed on a grassland strip not far from where years earlier Nate St. Jim Elliott, uh, Pete Fleming, the other two were killed by the Walrani, the Alka Indians. And that night in the Amazon jungle, we were sitting around a campfire. And if you've ever been in the Amazon jungle, you don't sit around a campfire to get warm. It's hot, it's humid. The purpose of that campfire is to drive animals away from the camp. And I asked my friend, who's a Wycliffe missionary, how do you get to be a Wycliffe missionary? And he said, well, you have to go through jungle camp. And jungle camp is where they teach you how to survive in the jungle. They teach you what to eat, what not to eat. And he said, at night, we'd build this fire. And again, the purpose of the fire was to drive the animals away from the camp. He said, but if you'd wake up about 2 o'clock in the morning as that fire had dwindled, and you began to listen, you could hear this movement in the jungle grass. And he says, as the fire and that perimeter of light got smaller and smaller, closer and closer into the camp came that noise. And he said, then you could start peering out and you could see eyes. He said, it gave you a little incentive to get up and put some wood on the fire. <laughs> I would say that's an accurate description of the church of Jesus Christ in North America. If we were ever in need of awakening and renewal and revival in this land, it's the day in which we live. It's a great opportunity, yes, but there's a great need. And I would ask all of us to examine our lives tonight, and if any of us need to put some spiritual wood on the fire, this is the time to do it. That's what revival is all about. Don't leave here with a fire that's just embers. We want that fire burning. Now, I'd like to, for us to pray that little prayer, Lord, speak to me, and then I'm going to read Scripture. Let's pray together. Lord, speak to me. We give you these next few moments, and we ask that you will speak to us and that we will be obedient to the sweet voice of your Spirit. God, we ask for revival in the land. I pray that you would kindle a fire of revival in each of us, and may you allow that flame to burn brightly, Lord, and give us victory in Jesus' name, for it's in your precious and lovely name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 10 about the armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, Take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, for years, I preached that text 
and I said there was only one offensive weapon. It's the sword of the Spirit. But several years ago, I, I was convicted that I had missed one of the offensive weapons, and I want to focus on that tonight. And Paul goes on to say, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. I believe prayer is one of the most powerful offensive weapons that is at our disposal. And I want to encourage you to use it. And I want to address three things that I think if Paul were here today, he would ask us to pray for him. I ask you to pray for me. I ask you to pray for your family. I ask you to pray for yourself for these same three things. The first one that I think he would ask us to pray for is that we would not beat up with, be beaten up by the enemy with the devastation of insignificance. Who are you? What right do you have to speak to this situation? They're going to think you're crazy. You're a nobody. All of that is a kind of language that our adversary the devil uses against us to keep us from doing what God's called us to do. I want you to own who you are. You are a child of the living God. You have been bought with a price. When I was in seminary, there was a, I don't even call it a theological term, but there was this concept floating around in some circles about cheap grace. Let me tell you something, friend. There is no such thing as cheap grace. The grace that enables us to be here tonight, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, cost the God of all creation his life. He believed in you so much that he gave his life for you. And he would have done it had you been the only one. You are not insignificant. You are not some cheap thing that just happened to be. You are a creation of Almighty God. God has invested his Son in you. And he wants to use you for his honor and his glory. Don't let the devil beat you up with the devastation of insignificance. I shared with you the other night about Richard Kimball. You never know. We were talking at dinner tonight with, I was, with one of the families I was sitting with for a little bit about you never know how many seeds or how many apples are in a seed. You don't know. You don't know that young person that's coming into your class or that young person that comes into this church, what they might become. And God might use you to speak into their lives. That's why all of us need to have self-control so that we can be used by God to influence those people that God brings into our life. You know, we are living in a changed world. This battle is raging and we are so far from the cross in our culture today, it's taking more and more touches to get a person to the place where they even make a decision for Christ. You are part of that. I want to give you two little statements. I don't think I've ever shared these with you. Uh, they're not original to me. One of my profs in seminary gave them to me, but they've always been a great encouragement to me. 
One, if you sow and don't reap, somebody's going to reap after you. Just be faithful. That's all God asks you to do. That's how God spells success, faithfulness. If you sow and don't reap, somebody's going to reap after you. Just be faithful. Keep sowing. The second part is this. If you reap having not sown, thank God for those that sowed before you and be humble. I mean, do I ever have a right to pat myself on the back? Oh, man, God really used No. If, if I'm preaching to a crowd and maybe 100 people or more come to faith in Christ, I don't have a right to have a puffed-up chest and say, oh, man, no. We're all in this together. Thank God for a mom or a dad or a grandparent or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or a neighbor or somebody that invested in them and they kept touching them and kept giving them the presence of Christ and then all of a sudden it connects and it makes sense. You are a part of that plan. You are not insignificant. God created you and he wants to use you. Don't let the devil tell you that you're insignificant because you're not. You're an important part of the kingdom of God. And he loves you, he made you, he designs you, you are significant. Now, that's not saying that we are puffed up about that. That's just owning who we are. I'm a child of the king. His blood flows in my veins. Thank God for that. It's not an arrogance. It's a thankfulness. Man, I, if I got what I deserved, I'd get hell. There's nothing in me except Christ that's good. The Bible says, and I think I'm a pretty good guy, but my righteousness, your righteousness in the presence of a holy, holy, holy God is nothing but a bunch of filthy, wretched rags. There's nothing in me other than Christ. But because of Christ, we are significant. So don't let the enemy beat you up with the devastation of insignificance. Secondly, I think if Paul were here, he said, pray that you don't get overcome with the intoxication of success. And it's easy for us to get sucked into that in the world in which we live. You know, Romania has had a great impact on my life. And uh, when I first went into Romania, when it was under communism, it was the closest thing to what I think the Wesley revival was that I've ever experienced. Uh, I spoke for three weeks straight to standing room only crowds where the Christians would give the seats to the unsaved people and the Christians would stand. And I mean, they prayed the power of God down in that place. And the revolution came, the European Union took them in, and the church in Romania today is only a glimmer of what it once was because the West did to Romania what communism couldn't do. Communism had said, in fact, there was a speech that Ceausescu gave 30 years prior to his death on Christmas Day when he was executed for atrocities against the Romanian people. He said, in 30 years, there'll be no church in Romania. Communism will have created such a utopia, there will be no need. But freedom came. Thank God for freedom. I'm not knocking freedom. I praise God for the freedom that they have. But there's been such a male drain on Romania because of being able to make more money in England and Germany and France and other places that the churches that were once packed are only small and basically filled with elderly people. But Western Europe is even worse the land of the Reformation, 
the land of the Wesley Revival, the land of the Anabaptist movement. You can go to France and Germany and England and visit cathedral after cathedral after cathedral after cathedral that was built for the glory of God, and they're empty. Canterbury Cathedral in England averages about 12 people on a Sunday. And unless we see awakening and renewal in America, the churches that we have built to hold large groups of people will one day, very soon, I fear, be where Western Europe is. We are at best one generation away. And I think a large part of it is because of the intoxication of success. I'm thankful for a lot of things in our country. But I'm also thankful for my heritage. And I'm not saying we should go back to all of this. But I'm just saying, guard your passion for Christ. For instance, I had to quit playing. I'm not saying this was necessarily all right. But because the home I was in, I had to quit playing baseball when I got to what was called the Connie Mack League then because they played on Sunday. Because church was the priority. There are all kinds of things that have come in and is impacting the spiritual life of our church. And I'm not just talking about Salem Fields. And I, I just say that guard yourself from being overcome with the intoxication of success. We've got money. I know the economy took a dip. We've got houses. We've got all this stuff. But would, do we have the most important thing? And that's a relationship with Christ. You know, one of my fondest memories after my dad died, I, I was speaking in a Revival not far from my mom's home, and I stayed with her that week. And to get up early in the morning and see my mom kneeling at the kitchen table, praying for her family. I'm thankful for that heritage. What are your kids seeing you do, moms and dads? I'm not picking on you. I'm just saying that it's urgent. The battle is real. And if we're going to win this battle, it's going to cost us something. And the most important thing you can give to your kids, the most important thing I can give to my grandkids now, is my love for Jesus Christ. I am so thankful to God for the investment that my dad and my mom made in me. And I want to make that same investment in my kids. I had the privilege this afternoon. doesn't happen this way all the time. But uh, my son called me when I was on the way over here. And uh, last thing we said to each other, he said, Dad, I love you. I said, David, I love you, man. And I was out here showing somebody the video that uh, Rosetta Thorpe and my daughter called. And... Uh, 
So I went back over in this room and talked to Michelle. I'm thankful that the investment that Barb and I have made in our, our family is not perfect. I'm a part of it, so you know it's not. Uh, but I tell you what, love will overcome a whole bunch of stuff. And moms and dads, grandparents, don't let the intoxication of success destroy your spiritual life. Please, I beg of you. Not only does Salem Fields need you to be passionately in love with Jesus, but all those around you need to see you passionately in love with Jesus. Not overcome with all this stuff that the Western world, and again, I, I'm not, not, I love stuff, but I don't want stuff to control me. I want Jesus to control me. I want my master to be in control of my life. I want your master to be in control of your life. I want your children, your grandchildren to see that Jesus is a priority in your life. It's not just a cute little cliche to say that some things are more caught than taught. I want us to live with contagious Christianity. Bill Hybels, several years ago, wrote a book on contagious Christianity. I love that title. I wish I had thought of it. Uh, I want to be contagious. I do. And the only way I can be contagious is time spent with him. So, pray that you don't get beat up with the devastation of insignificance. Pray that you don't get overcome with the intoxication of success. And then thirdly, Paul is very clear here. He said, pray that I'll speak it with boldness. And here we are living in a culture now that tolerates everything but Jesus. I mean, they'll tolerate everything but Jesus. So what do we do? Get over here in our little corner and keep our mouth shut? No. We say it with boldness. We say it with passion. We say it with compassion, but we say it. Jesus is the one that said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes in the Father but by me. It's not many roads, it's one way, and Jesus is it. And if you don't go by Jesus, you're not going to get in. I don't care if the world likes it. I don't care if the government likes it. I don't care who likes it. That's the truth, and we got to proclaim it. And we can't let this world keep us quiet. I was at a Rotary meeting not long ago when some decisions had been made in my community by a certain college about same-sex marriages. And this person was visiting a club, and he happened to be the new development director at this college and, or university. And I asked him, I said, oh, what are you doing? He said, I'm in charge of development. I said, can I ask you a personal question? He said, yeah. I said, have recent decisions at your university made your job more difficult? He said, I would say so. I said, praise God. <laughs> and they said, the guy sitting with me at the table said, well, the Supreme Court made the decision. They got it. I said, I don't get my orders from the Supreme Court. I get my orders from the Word of God, and the Word of God says it's wrong, and I'm going to say it's wrong. I'm not going to say it's not wrong. I said, well, you could get locked up. I said, it's okay. I'll just start a jail ministry. No problem. <laughs> I'm going to speak the truth. It's not always easy. Some of the greatest Christians I've ever known in my life were men and women that were persecuted for their faith. When I went into Romania, I met this one man, 96 years of age. He was in prison for 20 years. 
For 10 of those years, he said he never saw the light of day. He began to tell me a story. He was in a little cell, and then he'd walk like this all day long. In the morning, they'd bring him something, some soup to eat, and at night, they'd bring him. The only way he knew it was night or day is they'd say, good morning, Father. He was an Orthodox priest. And he was like this, 90, I think he was 93. He was in his 90s. And I thought arthritis. And he began to tell me his story. He showed me his back. It looked like we had spaghetti tonight. It looked like healed over spaghetti where he'd been beaten. They took his fingers one at a time and put them in a door and broke every finger. That's how they got like that. And I said, I'm, I'm there weeping. He's got a big old white, like a patriot. I, I said, how did you withstand the pain? He raised his hand toward heaven and said, oh, Jesus took the pain and gave me great joy. And the prison basically came to Christ because of him. Obedience cost him something, my friend. I don't ever want to go there, but I tell you what, the people that I've met that have been through persecution, there's a depth of commitment that they've got that I long for. When I first went into Romania, I thought, how in the world are these people doing this? My friend Peter de Gulescu, who's with the Lord now, they tried to kill him three different times. My friend Titus Coltier, his father was an attorney. And their pastor died, and he started filling in at the church when it was under communism. And the communist authorities came in and shut it down, and they said, He'd lost his mind because he was a, an attorney and had give up, give up, given up his position as an attorney to be a pastor. He had to be crazy. And they put him in jail, away from his family. And at the time in Romania, you had to get a visa to go from like uh, uh, one county to another. I mean, if I'd wanted to come from Rockham County over here, I, I'd had to get a visa. He had to go to the courthouse. It, it was all control. But after he'd been in prison for 10 years, they let him out. But they said he could no longer be an attorney. He could no longer be a pastor. All he could do was go into the sewers and clean the sewers. But as a sewer worker, they gave him a permit to travel all over the whole country. Woo! <laughs> and the revival spread all over Romania. Costly, yes, but he was obedient and he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ boldly. Paul said, pray for me that I'll share the message boldly. Now again, as I said the other night, we're all different. Your boldness might be exhibited in a different, my wife is bold, but Barb is quiet. She's bold in a different way than me. But she's, I mean, she's, my, my wife is a strong lady. And I thank God for that but she expresses it differently than I do. So I'm not asking you to change your personality. I'm just asking you to stand strong, knowing who has empowered you, equipped you in your inner being, and pray with Paul that we'll proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ boldly. Our world desperately needs it, my friend. Your neighbors desperately need it. Some of you, your families desperately need it. Your work associates desperately need it. I'm here tonight, the son of a godly mom and dad. My dad was a pastor. 
four older brothers that were pastors, but I'd walked away from the Lord. And God put me in an office with a young man that was passionately in love with Jesus Christ. I went to work on a Wednesday morning. And when I went in, he asked me that day, that morning, he said, what are you doing tonight? Before I thought, I said, nothing. He said, I want you to go to church with me. We got a great guy speaking. I think you'll like, Bill, I'm not going to go. Forget it. 10 o'clock that day, we were taking a coffee break, and he started talking about this evangelist. And I said, Carson, just forget it. I'm not going to go. We went to lunch that day, and I found out he was hearing impaired. At least he hadn't heard anything I said. (laughs) And he started in again. And I got pretty upset with him. I, I said, would you leave me alone? I got up and left, moved to another table. About 2.30 that afternoon, Christians are really sneaky, you know. He came over and apologized to me. He said, I don't want you to be upset with me. I said, it's, Bill, it's okay. I'm, I'm not upset. He said, I don't want anything to happen to our friendship. I said, that finish, friendship's intact. Okay, don't worry about it. And he got sort of teary-eyed and said, Steve, I'm just concerned. I really would like you to go. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll, I'll meet you there. He said, I'll come out and pick you up. And he did. And I was sitting about midway back in this first section of a much larger church, Thomas Road Baptist Church. I have no clue what the guy preached on that night other than he quoted a verse of scripture that's become one of my life verses. John 10, 10, the latter part. First part says the thief, the enemy, comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The latter part, Jesus says, but I came that you might have life. You might have it more abundantly. That word abundant literally translated from the Greek means it might be full, it might be meaningful, it might have purpose and direction. But see, I'd sit through these kind of meetings before. I I was so, I I probably was a basket case, but I knew not to grab the back of the chair or or the bench and any of those things. We stood up to sing, and I was determined I was going to get out of there. I'd get my head straight and I'd be clear. And that night, I looked over to my left and I saw a young man that used to frequent a lot of the same places I did in Lynchburg walk down the aisle. Excuse my bluntness, but I said, if he's got guts enough to do it, so can I. And I came forward and I gave my life to Christ that night because of a friend of mine who was bold enough to get in my face. Pray for boldness that God will use you to represent him well in all that you say and all that you do. My prayer for you is that you will not let the enemy beat you up with the, intox- with the devastation of insignificance because you are significant. Always remember that. Look yourself in the mirror and say, I am significant. I'm a child of God. Pray that you don't get overcome by the devastation or the intoxication of success. Don't let this world suck you into its mold. Be not conformed with this world, but be transformed. And pray that the God of all creation, by the power of his spirit, will empower you to be a bold representative for Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me for prayer? Father, I thank you for the sweet, sweet presence of your spirit in this place. I thank you for the attentiveness of everyone here. And I pray now in these closing moments you'd help all of us just to do right. 
I don't know what you're saying to each of us individually, but I pray that we would be obedient and that all of us will, be, will do what we'll be glad we did when one day we stand before you. Now, if anyone's here and you've never committed your life to Christ, I wanna give you that opportunity before we extend this invitation. And all you have to do is ask, Jesus said, if we'll confess with our mouth and believe in our heart, you shall be saved. So all you gotta do right where you are, just say, Lord, I confess you as my Lord and Savior. I thank you that you died for me and that you rose again. And because you live, I can live. If you've prayed that prayer, would you just raise your hand and say, Steve, I did. I know that my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I know that I know that I'm his. Anybody? Thank you. God bless you and you and you. Yes, praise God. Thank you. Amen. Now, some of you might say, the Lord's convicted you and you've allowed the enemy to beat you up with the devastation of insignificance. Who am I? And you need to come and just say, Lord, I give that to you. I'm sorry that I've acted like I'm a nobody because you've invested your life in me. You love me enough to die for me. I'm gonna love you enough to live for you. Or maybe you've allowed this world to conform you to its image. And the world's forced you into its mold rather than Jesus empowering you to be his representative. You've been drinking from the bottle of success rather than trusting him. Or you've been quiet when you should have been bold. Whatever God's saying to you, I found it really encouraging to me and helpful to me when I act on what I feel God's saying to me. And one of the ways we do that is just come and kneel in front of a group of people and say, I'm in, I'm all in. So if God's spoken to you tonight, I want you to just come as the worship team leads us.